So I think when I laid this out, I expected to do the, the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible for about two weeks. And we're on at least week three, and I'm pretty sure we're not going to finish what I want to do today. So <laughs> we'll probably be picking this up next week before we get on to the, the historical books. But we'll deal, uh, either next week or the week after, we'll deal with uh, Judges, Joshua, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, kind of all as one section. That'll be the next major section we tackle, and we'll look at some of the distinctives there. But So... Um, Last week, I told you guys I would have some slides, and so we'll just review real quick with it up on the screen. Some of the things we talked about last week, we went over the main event, the purpose of both Exodus and Leviticus, and we talked about what does this mean today. And so when we do these, we'll kind of pick out the, the main thing that happens in that book. We'll look at a couple of verses that we think describe uh, the purpose of the writing of that particular book, and then we'll ask, of course, what does it mean to us today? And so... Exodus, the main event was, of course, the Exodus, and so the purpose was telling the story of how God's people got out of slavery and into freedom, or at least out of uh, Egyptian captivity. We'll see true freedom comes a little later for them. Uh, Leviticus, main giving of the, the main event of Leviticus was the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and of course the purpose of Leviticus is these instructions for clean and unclean living. And We talked about how, uh, how that still applies today, even though we don't adhere to that law that we know God is particular. We know that not everything pleases God. We don't get to choose and act the way we want, that just because we are set free as the Israelites were from, from slavery, we still are expected as God's people to behave a certain distinctive way. And so we'll flip over to Numbers. Everybody see that one all the way in the back? Good, okay. I'll try to make sure. It's not no good if no one can read them, I figure, past the second row. But so... Numbers, we talked about the main event in Numbers, is the wandering, and we talked about those generations, how the generation that grew up in captivity died in the wilderness, and that was really their punishment for, for the sin, for the disobedience. And I, I had a couple notes that I didn't get to with Numbers before we move on to Deuteronomy. And uh, we, we talked about the purpose of the book was consequences of disobedience. And I wanted to look at uh, a key verse that I think really kind of explains what I was talking about with the issue with the promised land in terms of the punishment of the generation and the consequences of their sin because this is a pretty key uh, moment and a pretty key idea in the book of Numbers and this is from Numbers chapter 20 verse 12 if you know the story of Moses striking the rock uh, the, well we'll read the whole section We've got a couple, we'll take a couple minutes to read the whole section Numbers 20 beginning in verse 10 then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, ye rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Which you would think, okay, that sounds good, except the problem is Moses was told to speak to the rock and the water come out. And Moses struck the rock, and in fact, um, there's... There's more context to the story that I don't have time to get into, but there's this idea in the text, kind of in that context of that story, that it was out of anger, that, there was, that, that the act for striking the rock is the same way someone would strike somebody down, as in like to, to beat them kind of to death with a stick. And so there's some who would say that there, there was perhaps some sort of violence associated with the way, but that's, I don't really have time to get into that, but he disobeyed God, and he did so in really a prideful and in a manner that was certainly acting out. And so in verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, 
Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And so he, he proclaims this in Numbers 20. It's repeated a couple different times. We highlighted one of the key verses from Numbers was uh, chapter 32, verse 22 and 23, which was uh, that idea of your sin will find you out. And the sin of the Israelites, their wandering or this disobedience kind of came home to roost as they were wandering from God. God cursed them to wander in the desert, we could say. And so that generation that came up out of Egypt did not get to see into the promised land. They were uh, cursed to wander in the desert, and it was the next generation after them that was brought up. And so even if God is patient and gracious with us as he was then, he still, we still know there is punishment for sin today as there was then. And so we didn't really get to Deuteronomy at all. But is there any questions uh, about Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers before we keep going? We'll spend a couple minutes on Deuteronomy, and then we'll talk about those two passages I mentioned last week. Okay. Well, cool. I'd like to make a statement on it. We look at those things and say, well, that was something that happened years ago. No, it applies to us today. We still have the same thing, supposed to have the same thing that they did. We're supposed to have patience for people. And we speak to people. We're supposed to, we're just like, uh, go tell my people. What God's saying. That's right. We're going to tell people. Absolutely. And when we go up and talk to somebody, we better stop and think what's going on inside of them. We never know. That's true. Because we all have things going on inside. Absolutely. We well, don't turn our back on people. And you make an excellent point that even though they're older writings, we, we do want to highlight how they still apply today. That's a big part of what we want to do when we review some of these. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, so, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch, the fifth book. The name literally means uh, Deuteronomy. It means the second giving of the law, the second giving of the word. And so the main event of Deuteronomy is the renewal of the covenant. There's, there's two big things stylistically in Deuteronomy. If you've read, if you're one of those people who when you read it, you read the Bible chronologically, and you sat down and just read Exodus, Numbers, and Leviticus, you're not going to find a lot of new things that happen in Deuteronomy, which is kind of odd. You'd say, so why, what's going on here? Most of Deuteronomy is really a, a commentary or we'd even say, some people have identified it as saying it sounds like preaching or teaching on those events that have happened. And so it's not just stating the events the way Exodus did or what have you, but it's kind of restating them, it comments on them, it explains well, yes, this is how the law was given to Moses and this is what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments, for example, are listed again. They're given again in Deuteronomy as they were in Exodus. But it also offers insight or we'd almost say commentary or teaching on those events. And so if you're reading the Bible chronologically, just front to back, it can be confusing when it seems like, okay, we just talked about this. Why are we mentioning this again? Is this in order or what's going on? And if you looked at those accounts, they're, they're, they're portrayed differently or there's uh, just the way it, it presents them is differently. And that's because in Deuteronomy, it is often teaching on those events. It's, it's referring back to them as the Israelites are... Uh, about to go into the promised land. And so we'll, we'll see what we get to when we get to some of the verses in Deuteronomy. But the, the big event, the big event of Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, the renewal of the covenant. And so we talked about how in Joshua they're going to cross over into the promised land. And so most of Deuteronomy is preparing the people to live in the promised land. We, we've talked about the disobedience of that generation. Of course, we came out of slavery. We had the generation or the, the giving at Leviticus, the law, which says now that you're out of slavery, this is how God wants you to act. 
We have numbers that says if you do not obey God, this is what's going to happen to you. This is what's going to happen if you don't act the way we ought to. And now Deuteronomy is for those who have obeyed, for those who are kind of following God, they've renewed the covenant. And there is a, we could almost say preaching on some of these events of Israel's past at this point to remind them of the things they need to know to, before they can come into the promised land. And there's this idea that, you know, they, they can't live in the promised land with the same mentality or the same attitudes that their ancestors wandered in the desert. And if you think about it, their ancestors were condemned for the way they acted, right? They, they are not seeing the promised land for a reason. They were, um, the, we just read that one passage from Numbers 20, but we could look at numerous passages where God gets angry at the Israelites, where he's, he's upset because they're not listening, they're not being obedient to him. And so in Deuteronomy, we have a lot of teaching and a lot of instruction to really sort of prepare their minds and prepare their hearts for going into the promised land. And so we'll see, as you're reading Deuteronomy, a lot, a lot of Deuteronomy is in quotes. Like it's Moses speaking about the events that have happened. It's Moses te- really trying to teach the people about the events that have happened. Um, we'll go ahead and flip to the purpose purpose of it is, I kind of mentioned this already, but it's preparation for the promised land. That the Lord, the Lord wants us to dwell in Canaan. He wants to dwell in the land of milk and honey. And all of Deuteronomy is really preparing the people uh, to go into the promised land. We've got a couple different verses we're going to highlight that I think really uh, paint, paint this idea or this theme. So if someone could read for us uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9. Thank you, sir. So this, this little section from Deuteronomy 6 is, I don't even think we can paint this enough, but this was like the John 3.16 for the Jews, all right? You know, if anybody knows the Bible, they can probably tell you what John 3.16 was. Deuteronomy 6.4, for the Israelites then and for the Jews today, if they knew one line of the law, it was probably this one. Hear, O Israel, our God is one. And so this is a big, big deal. And I love sections of the Old Testament that remind us of things in the New Testament. He read for us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. Um, Another similar passage from Deuteronomy 10.12. What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. And so because it's um, these people who kind of analyze these big chunks of text and they look at it and they say, well, he's not really just telling a story, but it actually sounds like he's teaching. It's, it's almost structured like a, it was a really, really old sermon. And so there are a lot of this is Moses' teaching. So that's why there's sometimes what seems like repetition or it seems like we're, we're telling us things we already know. Well, it is. You're supposed to know what's going on. But he's, he's, teaching, he's telling the people that there's something to be learned from these things. 
There's something to be learned from the golden calf. There's something to be learned from the giving of the law in Sinai. There's something to be learned about the, the covenant of circumcision and things like that. So que- questions so far on Deuteronomy. This is the first time I think we're really diving into this particular book. So, Okay, cool. Uh, I'll read one more. I wanted to highlight one more verse that sort of I think is key for interpreting all of Deuteronomy and perhaps the entire Pentateuch. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, verse 17 through 19, if someone could read that for us. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17 through 19. So this seems like a weird one to pick compared to Deuteronomy 6. I told you how Deuteronomy 6.4 is like this, this big, big verse that interprets everything they know about God, and they, they really like it. They would, In fact, many Jews all the way up until Jesus' time would have literally written Deuteronomy 6.4 as over their doorpost because that's what it says. Put it over your doorpost and front and on your eyes. This one seems a little weird compared to that one. But if we think about what's going to come after Deuteronomy, we're going to have the period of the judges. We know we're going to be led by Joshua. We're going to have the period of the judges. What happens after the period of Judges? I want to guess. What do we know happens in the books of Samuel and the books of the Kings? That might have something to do with Deuteronomy 17. Go ahead. They're going to worship idols. They're going to have a king who decides to take much gold and many of their wives for himself. They're going to have a king who turns away from how God wants them to live. And so we see the groundwork being laid in Deuteronomy for a lot of the problems Israel is going to have later. And again, we, we've, we've talked about this before, how we, we need to kind of understand how all of the Bible fits together to, to really sort of understand the depth of it sometimes. When you read about David and Solomon as we get into First and Second Kings several weeks from now, I think sometimes we look at their stories and we, th- we, we know the story of, say, David and Goliath. We know about uh, how, he, how he caught Saul in the cave, but he didn't kill him. And we see these stories and we're like, oh, David is such a, a, hero- a heroic king. We know Solomon built the temple and Solomon was the one who prayed for wisdom and he, and he saved the baby who they wanted to cut in half. And he did all these amazing wise things. But it also, in Solomon's story, there's a lot of stuff that we don't necessarily pick up on because we don't. We're not as familiar in the law. And one of these is the hoarding up of gold and of women that both David and Solomon do that was seen as very, very wicked in the eyes of God. And so both David and Solomon are very mixed bag characters, but that's intentional because the Israelites knew the law. And if you remember, it's, it's not God who comes to the people and says, hey, I think it would be a really good idea for you guys to have a king right now. When we get into Samuel, we'll see the people are like, we need a king like all the other nations have a king. And what happens? Samuel warns them. He says, guys, if you ask for a king, a king is going to do these things that is not right in the eyes of God. Well, guess what happens? Pretty much like he said it would go. And so there will be references to a lot of parts of this law. And, and we see, again, when I talk about preparation for the promised land, Deuteronomy 17 is just part of that. You don't need a king when you're in Egyptian captivity, right? You're all pretty much equals. You're all slaves. They were led by Moses in the wilderness. Moses is going to choose Joshua, but what happens after Joshua? 
not really anything. So, so leadership is a big thing that we'll see start to come up as well. And because if, if the people have good leadership, the people tend to do well. When the people have poor leadership, the nation kind of falls. And so we'll, we'll see that going forward. Um, that becomes a bigger and bigger player. Now that they're out of, out of captivity, they're, they're getting out of the wilderness, we'll see that leading people leading the people in a way that's accordance with God's will is a big thing that's going to start, uh, just start being a big thing later on. Another one, another I would say a big idea from Deuteronomy that applies today is trusting God. The people have wandered in the desert. We, we know the prior generation, God says he didn't trust them, and so he condemned them. This generation is wandering in the desert. They know God is bringing them into this land. And, and we see several passages where he says, you're going to go in, you're going to conquer these people, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and you have to do it in this way. And if you do this, I will be faithful to you. But if we think about what people... Have you ever seen somebody after they've been on like a really long hike? Not like an afternoon. I mean like those people who go on like week-long hikes. Okay, now imagine a few thousand of those people. Are they conquering anybody? <laughs> are they beating anybody at any sort of military war? Are these the people who are going to lay siege to cities? No. And so you've got this ragtag group of starving rags, no sandals on their feet, people walking out of the wilderness. And God says, as soon as we cross that river, we are killing all those people and taking all their land. Okay. <laughs> but God is saying, trust me. Trust me. Sometimes God says, trust me, and the things God says to do make perfect sense. We see examples of this as we start uh, getting into Joshua. Sometimes God says to do things, and the people go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I get that. Sometimes God says, march around a building seven times, and then blow your trumpets, and I'm going to give you the city. And we like that story. It's probably one of my more favorite VeggieTales stories. If you've ever seen it, they throw slushies at the people. It's really cute. But it doesn't make any sense at all. It's one of the more incomprehensible stories if you try to put yourselves in the feet of the people and you imagine a group that's just walked across the wilderness. They've just forded a river, which in Oregon Trail means they all have dysentery, and they lost the kids. Nobody played Oregon Trail? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. So, okay, this has got to be the age demo for Oregon Trail. So they cross the river. And God says, you see that city that's like the fortress that's on the wall and it's like the crown jewel of that empire? You're going to take that city. And sometimes God just tells us, it's like, just flat out doesn't make sense. And I think this, we, we see the same thing when we look in the New Testament. We see things, do not murder. Okay, that makes sense. I get that. I'm with you, God. Do not get angry. Well, angry is not very helpful. I, I get that. Do not commit adultery. Yeah, yep, I love my wife. Don't want don't to cause problems there. That makes sense. Love your enemies. Mm. I don't know about that one, God. <laughs> that one doesn't make as much sense to me. And we, we can pick one. Sure. Now. I, well, they were commanded to go take those people. The Jews were. What was that? Did every one of them, did every one of them have that responsibility? Of going taken, or did they just have people set aside to go and take those people? In every Jew. In Deuteronomy, is that what you're talking about? Did they have the responsibility to go kill those people? You think? Well, we'll get into that when we get into Joshua, because we'll deal with some of the difficult passages. Like, okay. what do we do with uh, you know God telling people to go kill all the men and take all the women? What do we do with that? We'll get to that uh, in the next book. Right. So I'll I'll dodge your question for now, but we will answer it. <laughs> um, 
but we have to trust God. Even sometimes He tells us to do things that make sense. Even when He tells us to do things that don't make sense, uh, we need to trust God. Uh, another big theme in Deuteronomy today, or that applies today, was understanding the history of God's people. Uh, there's there's very few events that happen in Deuteronomy that we haven't that we don't see in Exodus and Leviticus. It's it's mostly teaching on those events, but it's teaching on those events because He's telling the people, Hey, you need to know your history. It's good for you to know the mistakes other people have made. It's good for you to know how other people have fallen from God in the past so that we can learn from those things going forward. And so even, even for us, the same thing is true for us now, whether it's you know, Malachi or Second Kings or even Deuteronomy and Leviticus. It is good for us to know how God's people have behaved in certain situations so that we can avoid committing the same mistakes. Um, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. One of my favorite things about studying the Old Testament is reading books that are thousands of years old, that were originally written in a language that I can't even possibly comprehend, and yet the people in them behave exactly like people today. We see things. We see people do things that are just like, oh, yeah, people totally do that today. Moses brings down the law. He goes back up the mountain, and the moment he's gone, people are like, we need other idols. Moses has been gone for five seconds. We need, we need something else. And so, yeah, people kind of do that today. <laughs> But we know of the complaining that happened as soon as they were out of Egypt and they're in numbers where they're begging that the manna from God is just not good enough. I'm like, oh yeah, we see, we see people do that today. And so knowing the history of God's people is very, very helpful. It can be very insightful, not just to understanding his word, but also understanding ourselves and uh, learning, learning and growing and trying not to make the same mistakes. So any questions on our overview of the books? We're about to get into understanding Understanding the law and narrative, which is what I said last week we would talk about. But I wanted to finish going over our, our sort of book-by-book book overview. So, I would say one of the biggest problems, and if you've tried to read these books, you understand what I'm talking about. And perhaps a confusing problem in these first five books is the mixing of what I would call law sections and narrative sections. Um, Biblical narrative is a really fancy way of saying stories in the Bible. If I say stories, people make think it sounds like I'm talking about things that aren't true, so I stick with the word narrative. <laughs> um, but if we're reading the Pentateuch, we have passages like the Golden Calf, passages like Moses talking to God, passages like crossing the Red Sea, the giving of the plagues, where things are happening. They're telling us a story. We can see the action. We can see the movie in our minds. And then we have sections where for about 20 pages, he just tells us what to do and what not to do. Those are very different. And we've got to read those differently. And we understand those differently. And so what I wanted to do this week, and we won't get through it, is I wanted to look at two uh, key examples of what I would call law passages and narrative passages. And we'll talk about what we can learn from each of them and how we read those two things differently. And the way I would compare this is I would say we read the Gospels differently than we read 1 Corinthians. It's not that we say one is more important than the other or that, that one is less true or false or anything like that. But just the Gospels and an account of Jesus, the 1 Corinthians, the letter to the church, we interpret those differently. Even if we don't mean to, we, we kind of read those differently just because well, we know this is a letter and this is the Gospels. What can be tricky in the Pentateuch is we have two different styles sometimes in the same book and it doesn't always tell us when they're switching. And again, if you've ever sat down to really read through the Bible, you, you know what I'm talking about, and it can be kind of tricky. So, if we're studying a passage for the first time, especially in the Pentateuch, if I'm reading it for the first time, even if I'm picking it back up and haven't studied it for a while, I want to throw out some key questions you need to start with. The first one would just be, be aware of what book I'm in. That sounds very basic, 
But even in the Old Testament, we, we know this in the New Testament, as I just said, we read you know, John differently than 1 Corinthians or even differently than Acts, differently than Revelation. Same thing is true in the Old Testament. I know sometimes we think the Old Testament is just this sort of block. But if I'm in Malachi or Deuteronomy or Psalms, I need to know that I'm going to read that differently depending on which book I'm in. And the second thing, which is really that same question, is what kind of passages is this? Um, genre is a fancy word that people a lot of use when they're studying the Bible and this kind of stuff. But it's easy to just say, what kind of style is it? What type of passage is it? Is it a psalm? Is it a song of praise? Is it a letter? Is it, is it prophecy? Or is it a narrative? Or is it the giving of the law? And so these last two we'll focus on uh, for, for this week. But we'll talk about, as we continue our study, all the different genres of literature that are in the Old Testament. And that's important because we read it differently. So does that, does that sort of question make sense? Does what I'm saying make sense there? That's pretty foundational to the rest of what we're going to do. So I just want to, if not, someone just throw out a question. I, I'm, see what we can do. Okay. Well, we'll look at two examples. I mentioned these last week, Exodus 3 and Exodus 20. We'll start with Exodus 3. Okay. Go ahead and turn to Exodus 3. So I'm not going to read all of this because it's very long, for one. We don't really have time. But uh, we'll read a few verses. Uh, from sort of the middle of chapter 3. I think you'll find, I mentioned these last week, if you went ahead and read them, or whether you're looking at them now, you'll probably find it's a familiar passage to you that's kind of by design, hopefully. But I'll read a few verses from Exodus chapter 3. We'll just begin in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And so if I said, from say Exodus chapter 3 to about 417, and I said, do you think this is law or this is a narrative section? Which one do we think it is? Okay, good. Good, okay, so hopefully I've made at least a little bit of sense so far. I was hoping that was an easy one. Um, And if you didn't know, you had a 50-50 shot anyway, right? So yes, it's a narrative. When we say narrative, I mean they're historical events with a theological purpose. They're straightforward. It's just like storytelling, but they're telling us part of their life. They're telling us part of the history of the people, but they do so with a purpose in mind. And I say that's very important. I mean, this, it's, this, it's very similar to how we read the Gospels. The Gospels is not an exhaustive account of Jesus' life. There's whole years missing. In fact, most of the Gospels only deal with three years of Jesus. I would have loved to know what 16-year-old Jesus was like, 8-year-old Jesus, 6-year-old Jesus. Did, when Jesus was a carpenter in his dad's shop, did he make chairs that were any good? Was he perfect in everything? He did, you know, There's plenty of questions I would have, but the Gospels are not an exhaustive account of Jesus' life. They're not biographies in that sense. They tell us parts of Jesus' life, and for a very important reason, every single story they tell us has great significance. 
And I say that because <laughs> has anyone been in a conversation where someone's about 10 minutes into a story and you still have no idea why you're telling you that story? My roommate in college used to have a way of uh, tipping me off to this. He would just kind of say, so are you like about to find $20 or something? <laughs> that was his way of saying, this story's not going anywhere and it needs to get there quick. <laughs> Every single story, even the ones that don't make sense, even the ones that seem slow, even the ones that make us go, okay, Moses, are you about to find $20 or something? What's going on? They are in that passage for a reason. And so sometimes it's up to us to sort of get out our spade and shovel and little archaeological brush and dig into it and figure out what that reason is. Usually it's straightforward. Usually. That's the beauty of the Old Testament. Usually it's straightforward. Usually we have something like this, where God shows up in a bush, or God shows up in a pillar of fire, or God is writing things on stone with his finger. Pretty, pretty insane things. It usually is very clear. But it's important to understand that this is not just an exhaustive account of Israel's people, but they are particular stories told with a purpose in mind. Yes, ma'am. You got Horeb and Sinai. Where he gave the law. It's just called. There's there's usually stuff in the Hebrew going on there too, like Horeb, the word it comes from, has a, a significance there. But typically they just call it the mountain of God because that's where God would give the law to Moses. And then there's this other tricky thing where sometimes it's called Horeb and sometimes it's called Sinai. They're almost certainly the same place, and it boils down to a linguistic thing. And that they had different words for the same, different, like as their language evolved, they had different words for the same location. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's a good question. So these stories are told with a purpose in mind. Uh, they take place in context. If you're ever sitting down to, we're looking at the burning bush. We studied the burning bush. We have to understand that it's going to relate to Exodus 2. It's going to relate to Exodus 5. Now, that's a big, big deal. And the other thing I would say, just to remember when you're studying these narrative sections, is that in the New Testament, we can take a chunk of Jesus' life, and we can probably get a singular story with about six to seven verses. Parables, little healings, events like that, they're typically only, depending on the size of your Bible, they're probably about that big. If uh, you're over the age of 40, they're probably about a page. You get six words per line. But... I'm already there. I'm going to need audiobooks in like five years. I'm already there. Um, but you, you can typically get a story that makes sense by itself in about seven verses, right? You can pick a parable. You can pick a healing. You can get a slice of Jesus' life, and we can study that as a whole unit in about seven verses. When you're studying the Old Testament, you're probably going to have to grab like at least a chapter or a chapter and a half to get a section that actually makes sense on its own. Does that make sense? If I just study the beginning of the parable of the Good Samaritan, I don't really get the point. I could do it, but it's not really going to tell me the whole point of the story. I need to look at the whole section. Same thing in the Old Testament. The burning bush, for example, runs roughly from Exodus 3 to about, I would say, Exodus 4.17. <laughs> we can debate where it should begin or start, but I, but I say that to say that for me to understand why God is showing up in a bush and is not consumed, I have to read past verse 2. He's going to tell me eventually. But again, when we're in the New Testament, we're used to dealing with smaller chunks. In the Old Testament, you're almost always going to have to deal with bigger chunks. And so just something to keep in mind as we're studying these narrative passages. Um, another one 
is it contains good and bad examples. David slaying Goliath. And there, David's a good role model. David stood up. He, he, he went when God told him to go, even when it didn't make sense. Even when men told him, oh, you can't do it. You know, you need to be scared. This guy's big and crazy, and he's going to kill all of us. And David said, no, I think God is sending me to do this. But when David, who again, remember, we can kind of tend to think, oh, David's a good guy. When David finds the lady on the balcony two houses down very attractive and sends her husband off to war, that's a bad example. <laughs> that's... And so it, the Old Testament is tricky because in the New Testament, anytime we see Jesus, we can be pretty confident that Jesus is modeling good behavior. Anytime we see the Pharisees, we can be pretty confident the Pharisees are modeling bad behavior. Disciples are like a coin flip. Sometimes disciples are doing the right thing. Sometimes disciples are lost and confused as we are. But in the Old Testament, you, you are filled with examples of good and bad behavior. So you can't just look at this. I've, I've had many studies with, uh, I would say, kids kind of around high school who look at particular passages like, man, why does, he, why, why does David, for example, talk about hating God? Or why does this character talk about doing this and this? And it's like, well, you know, if you talk to your kids and you're telling your kids a story, usually you're telling them a story that you want them to emulate, right? You say, I want you to act this way. But the Old Testament has good and bad examples, good and bad role models. And so we've got to be careful how we read them. A big part of that is understanding the context. So, so Exodus 3 specifically. We are in the book of Exodus. What do we know the purpose of the book of Exodus is? People are getting set free. They're getting set free from Egyptian captivity. They're, we know, so if we're sitting down and studying Exodus 3, you can know in the back of your mind, okay, I know in Exodus, the goal of Exodus is the freeing of the people of God from Egyptian captivity. And the Israelites become a nation. Yes. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a big part of it too. Um, and so I, I know in the back of my mind, when I sit down to look at Exodus 3, that that is the overarching purpose of the book. And so now I can look at Exodus 3 and I can see, so how does this relate to that purpose? And again, how I talked about breaking it up into bigger chunks. If I only read through verse 5 or 6, I have a really cool scene. It's a very powerful exchange. I love those lines, right? Just take off your sandals. The feet are staying on his holy ground. But we haven't really figured out what this has to do with the purpose of where the author's going or what the point is. So we've got to read on. And if we read on in chapter 3... How does chapter 3 relate to the purpose of freedom and the becoming a great nation that we'll see in the book of Exodus? How does chapter 3 help us get to that purpose? There's not really a specific right answer. You want to think about it for a minute, that's fine. He gives them instructions. And what do you tell Moses to do? A lot of us, yeah, a lot of them, and but very significantly, as we, if we, because they, they have this very long conversation, if we got all the way to chapter four, we would see that he says, "I am sending you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go." And Moses starts expressing all these doubts and fears, and he's like, "Oh, they're not going to believe me." And God says, "You're right. They're not going to believe you, but you know what? I'm going to do great and amazing things, and then eventually they will believe you." And so. Again, if we know the purpose of the book and we sit down and read a particular passage, these narrative passages, we need to ask ourselves how this contributes to the major purpose of the book. We can sort of put it in on that timeline or put it in on that, that arc. And the, the, one of the big ideas out of this one is that, yes, God is going to set his people free. He's sending Moses. He's sending Moses with authority. We know, of course, that in this section we also see that God gives his name 
But more importantly, it's not just that God has a name. I think sometimes we, we take that away when he says, I am who I am. But it's more important that God's name has authority. When Moses says, well, who will I say that has sent me? And God will say, you will say that the I am has sent you, the God of your fathers, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham. And what he's telling Moses is that you don't need any further credentials. You tell them I sent you, and that's the buck stops here, essentially. That's all you need. So we see that God's name has authority. So when God calls Moses, God is sending him with a purpose, with a mission, and with great authority. In, in verse 14, God said, and God said to Moses, my Bible has in, in capital letters, yes. I am who I am. Mm-hmm. Is that just holiness, or was he a little upset at that? No, um, a lot of times you will see Bibles do that um, with the name of God. Um, the same thing if you see uh, capital L-O-R-D. There's like three or four names of God. It would be a really good study one time, honestly, to do over the names of God in the Bible. Um, typically, it was the name generically for God or Lord. But whenever you see capital L-O-R-D or this here, that is when God is invoking like the Yahweh name for God. Um, to the Jews, and we could argue it should to us a little bit, that carried a step more of authority. That, that was almost like God going first, middle, and last when you were a kid. <laughs> um, you had many names. You might have been called son, kid, hey you. But if you got first, middle, and last name, you knew it was serious. But when they invoke the Yahweh name of God, that's when you know it's serious. And so one of the reasons that the text will do that is it'll put it in those capital letters. Um, Good question, though. Good question. Um, a big thing about understanding these narrative passages is context. Does anyone want to guess where in the world we are? <coughs> Carmen San Diego. Geographically, do you know where in the world we are here? Egypt, or very near outside of it, right? <laughs> in the beginning, we're in Egypt. By the end, we'll be just outside of Egypt. So... What we need to kind of do, and I understand this will mean going outside the Bible a little bit, but if you want to really understand what's going on, it can be useful to think about the things you know about Egypt in that time period, particularly particularly as it relates to their religions. If you know anything about Egyptian mythology, you know they had a bajillion <coughs> gods, and all their gods had names too. They had the god of the river, the god of the Nile, the god of the floods, the god of the harvest, the god of the sun. They had all these different names and all these different gods. And if you think about that, that being the culture the Israelites grew up in, essentially, when I tell you that Deuteronomy 6.4 was like their John 3.16, it was their title verse, it might make a little sense to think about, here, O Israel, our God is one, as a pretty important statement when you grew up in a very polytheistic culture. When you and I tell each other, here, O people, God is one, we're all just like, well, yeah, duh, what? Anyone who believes in a real God believes in one God, right? Even people we don't agree with believe there's one God. Everybody knows that. Almost every culture at the Israelites' time, almost every other culture besides theirs was incredibly polytheistic. And something else, and this is getting a little deeper, when they talked about their gods, their gods were not good people. Their gods were malicious. Their gods would trick humans. They had stories about the gods lying to and tricking humans. And so when we see a lot of the way God talks to people, he is making the point that he's like, I know you've heard about other gods, but I am not like them at all. And if we don't know anything about other gods, we just kind of like, okay, well, that's cool. It's good information. But it can be helpful to understand the context that these stories take place in. 
the Egyptians were polytheistic. They had many gods. Those gods had many names. Some were good. Some were bad. Some were tricksters. They were not all good, honest, faithful beings in their stories and their little mythologies. And so God goes to great lengths to sort of prove himself to the people that when you talk about me, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am good, I am faithful, and I am one. We'll get to the law passage next week in Exodus 20.